Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com changelog. This episode is brought to you by Auth0. Auth0 makes authentication easy. We love building things that are fun. And let's face it, authentication is not always fun or easy to build. It can be a pain. It can take hours to implement and sometimes even days. And even after you have it all in place, you have to keep it up to date, keep it secure. And, and Auth0 makes it super easy and fast to implement real-world authentication and authorization architectures into your apps and APIs. You can allow users to log in however you want, regular username and password, Facebook, Twitter, enterprise ID providers like AD or Office 365, or let them log in without passwords, just like we do on changelog.com. To get started, grab the SDK for your platform of choice, add a few lines of code to your project. This can be a mobile app, a website, or even an API. They all need authentication. Sign up for Auth0 and get the free plan or try the enterprise plan for free for 21 days at auth0.io slash the changelog. That's A-U-T-H, the number zero, dot I-O slash the changelog. No credit card required. Once again, auth0.io slash the changelog. You're listening to the Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of open source. I'm Adam Stokowiak, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. On today's show, we're going back into the archives to conversations we had around blockchain and databases at OzCon. We talked with Money Vadenius, the creator of MariaDB, the Opens for Forever fork of MySQL, Brian Bellendorf, Executive Director of Hyperledger, the open source collaborative effort hosted by the Linux Foundation to advance blockchain technologies, and also Tag Griffith, Head of Developer Advocacy at Redis Labs, the home of open source Redis and commercial provider of Redis Enterprise. So we're joined here by Monty Vadenius, one of the founders of MySQL and CTO of MariahDB. MariahDB. Maria. Oh, see, Adam and I were arguing how you pronounce it just a few minutes ago, weren't we, Adam? And I, I said Maria. And I said, is it, I said, this guy's with MariahDB. And he goes, isn't it Maria? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> At least you got uh, MySQL right and not... Um, it's not MySQL. No. Oh. We also have uh, interviewed Richard Hip of SQLite, and we learned there that he likes to call it SQLite like a meteorite. Uh, so fun times arguing over how to pronounce things. But Monty, first of all, thanks for joining us. Uh, secondly, thanks for MySQL. And uh, tell us about MariahDB. Give us just a brief history of that. I want to get into your talk about how to make money with open source. That's what he's talking about today. Okay. Uh, but before that, give us the, just the brief rundown of the history of the MySQL, the MariahDB, and where you're at today. I mean, I, I was uh, the original creator of MySQL. Uh, in other words, I did most of the development and eventually uh, we were sold to Sun and then Oracle took over Sun and uh, uh, me and the other group of people was afraid that uh, uh, MySQL would not survive as an open source project. So we uh, went out from uh, Sun and uh, created a fork of MySQL called MariaDB which is guaranteed open source. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, Almost all of the original core people left MySQL development and joined MariaDB. So I'm working with the same team I have been working with since um, uh, 95. 
So is that a point now where if you're still using MySQL, there's just you should be on MariaDB now? There's no reason to use uh, MySQL anymore. All um, distributions, um, Linux distributions, except Ubuntu, has switched to MariaDB as default. Ubuntu is also including MariaDB. So really? If you want to use what everybody else is using, you should use MariaDB. And was it a like a, a straight code fork in terms of? Uh, originally, yes, but now we have some 30 man years on top of uh, MySQL, a lot more features, a better application, and much more secure. Very cool. So I, I had heard the story of Maria. Uh, I never heard anybody say Maria DB out loud, obviously, but I heard I've read uh, that that was happening, but I didn't know the state of the of the new thing, which is great to hear that it's like production ready. It's like <laughs> it has like, been that out there. For uh, five, six years. Five, already. six years. So, the MariaDB company, we have 100 people, of almost half are, are developers uh, working on uh, MariaDB and uh, things run MariaDB. So, we're yeah. doing really good. Right. Really cool. So, you're talking about how to make money with open source. Yes. You know, you, MySQL was open source. You sold a company around it to yeah. Sun, then to or which went to Oracle. Now, MariaDB is open source, but yet, MariaDB Corporation. So tell us about how you're going about running a 100-person company on an open source thing like this. Yeah, so with MySQL it was easy because we did own all the code. So uh, so we come up with how to do dual licensing uh, on GPL, with, and we were the first uh, project who ever did that. You were. And uh, the thing with um, being a product company where you create a product, you can't just survive by license revenue. And we did know that from the start. So that was also why we started with dual licensing because I wanted to work full time on MySQL and I couldn't do that just by doing support and consulting. So okay. we were the second project who did um, uh, dual licensing at all the, uh, and uh, first with, with GPL and uh, that allowed us to grow and then eventually got to sold to Sun for one uh, billion dollars. Oh wow. And the license revenue was the one that made it uh, the difference compared to other open source companies. And uh, nowadays uh, I'm helping a lot and advising a lot of companies how to uh, be a success in a similar way that we, we did with MySQL. With MariaDB, we don't own the code because we are a fork of uh, right. MySQL, so we are bound by the GPL. So what we do is then is um, uh, support and subscription around the core product, but then we have some other products on the side that uh, has a license revenue that allows us to grow. Because uh, if you want to compete with the big guys, you need to have a similar revenue model uh, as they have. Huh. Even, even with open source, uh, the nice thing that I loved with MySQL was that um, only one in a thousand uh, paid. And that means that we was able to really help a lot of people to get a good database and at the same time having a few who made it possible for us to, to do that. Which is awesome, absolutely. Yeah, and that was the, the best thing with open source uh, licensing, that you can actually do a good thing and at the same time earn enough money so you can continue doing that. Yeah, so I'm just, I, I got stuck a little bit on your billion dollar sale, I didn't realize that was that big. Personally, Monty, why didn't at that point you say, well, I'm gonna go get a mojito and uh, hang out in Cancun <laughs> or uh, St. Lucia for the rest Kick of my back. life. Retire. Yeah, why didn't you retire at that point? You wanna keep going. No, they did. Uh, so first, I wanted to ensure that uh, Sun would get the most benefit of my SQL. That's why I joined Sun originally, uh -huh. uh, to see, see that uh, uh, they would be able to steer the project, MySQL, in the right direction. And I stayed there for one year, and uh, then there were friction between people who were used to working at a small company and didn't like the 
atmosphere of sun. Nothing wrong with sun, but <laughs> big companies, they, there's lots of bureaucracy and everything else. And sure. people started to leave. So I, I, I talked with them, uh, CTO, and said that the best way to ensure that you don't lose the minds of these bright people is that I go out, I create a new company, I hire these people, and then I can take care of them as they would be in a small company, but you would have uh, access to them as they would have worked for you. Santo, that was a great idea, so I left yeah. Sun, and one month later, then Oracle announced that they will buy Sun. So, so instead of helping Sun, uh, I, I refocused to start the uh, local work on the product. Did that completely blindside you, the Oracle yeah. acquisition? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the thing was that uh, uh, I didn't ever plan to do a MariaDB fork, and I probably would have been working uh, or being in Hawaii with mo Mojito, very <laughs> right. likely. Yeah. But uh, the thing is that when you have put your whole life into an open source project and uh, feel that you have made a, a difference and helps a lot of people, um, just l letting everything collapse just because you want to have your mojito, I would have felt bad, bad about it. So I, sp I put uh, a big part of the money that I got from the sun sale, I put into uh, ensuring that MariaDB would survive so that, that both the product I have worked on since 1981, and the people that I worked with for tens of years yeah. would, would have a wor workplace for life. That's so great. I mean, a sense of responsibility and a, yeah. a sense of purpose is is better than a mojito. Yeah. And you and can you can take vacations, but you got to think about legacy. You got to think about future. You got to think about the and future. All the people using the software. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, mean, I felt really bad for all the people that I got to believe in open source. Yeah. It's here to here to stay. If my school just disappeared, I would basically have let down all of them, yeah. and I, that would not allow me to sleep. And I do value my sleep, so it was easier <laughs> to work more and get good sleep. So, uh, give us some examples in Maria's model where you have. The core product, you don't have licensing on that because of the reason that you said. Yep. But then you have these side add-ons or... So we have, uh, what we have now, we have a max scale, which is a really good proxy. Okay. Okay. We also be able to do failover and other things, but also uh, gives you more control of, uh, of using MariaDB, especially in large uh, environments. And that we have a license under uh, something we call the business source license. This was a license that me and David Axmark, the other founder of MySQL, come up with some 10 years ago. Okay. But now we have started to um, make it more popular because I see a lot of companies struggling with that. They would love to do open source. They see the benefit of it, but they are afraid that if they would go become open source, they would lose all the revenue, the customer would stop paying them. And uh, that causes a problem with conflict. You want to do the right thing, but you can't. And the Business source license was invented to solve exactly this thing, to allow more people to do eventually open source, but uh, and also give the users of the software many of the freedoms that you expect with the, with, the, with, the, with the open source software. So it's not an open source license, but it's an eventually open source license. It become uh, within four years guaranteed that the, the, the code that you have is open source, but okay. you have all the code from the start. So you get the benefits that uh, if there's bugs, you can fix it. Uh, if uh, uh, you want to add something, you can do that. You still have to pay for it, like with any uh, closed source uh, software um, or commercial software, actually. Right. But uh, you still have the freedom that you are not uh, hauled uh, uh, by the 
one company who can do any changes or just go out of business or stop producing the software. So this is an entirely different thing. This is you said it's business source business license. license. It's a closed source license, but with lots of open source uh, ideas around it. Okay. And uh, we have released MaxScale uh, on this one, and uh, and going from having MaxScale as a free component in the our subscription offering, no, we are selling licenses and, and deal sizes not more anymore 10,000, they are in the 100,000 or even in the million dollar range. So it totally transformed the business. Uh, the other option we have as a company is to go with, with, with Open Core, but I hate Open Core with passion because what I expect uh, from software I use, I want to be in charge of my own destiny. Yeah. With, with Open Core, I lose all the freedoms. I can't do bug fixing anymore. Uh, I, I totally depend on, on the company's uh, whims and so on. Yeah. Business Source is there to be a bridge between closed source and open source, and in the end, produce more produce more open source companies who couldn't afford to do it before. Are there other people taking this business source license that you're using at MariaDB and using it for their companies? Uh, we, I'm, Steam? I've been uh, holding uh, talks about this now for two years and there have been lots of interests. Yeah. Uh, still, they needed somebody to show the way and that's why we released, was it uh, nine months ago, uh, MaxScale as uh, uh, business, source. business source and make a lot of noise about it. and. Uh, I'm today also talking about that, that today. And uh, we need to spree, spread the word because personally, I feel it really bad as an open source advocate to see that on the phones, almost all apps are closed source. And there's no re the only right. reason for that is that these companies want to earn money and the open source model doesn't work. With business source, they could, have, have, they could earn as huh. much money as they do now without, uh, but still, getting the benefit of getting uh, other people helping them develop the software. Very cool. Well, we're definitely going to check that out. Adam, I had not heard of the business source license. So that's I'm going to pull up right here. It's uh, BSL 1.1 right now, it seems. Yes. And it seems like if they contribute back through the business source license, it will eventually be open source as well. So yeah, is it, it... That's the idea. The idea, right. the idea is basically that with the business source license initiative is that I want to make business source uh, or BSL as easily understood as GPL. GPL is a compl complex license. When I started with MySQL, uh, when MySQL year 2000 became GPL, I spent so much time explaining GPL to companies and, and the effects of that. Right. And no people know what it is. I mean, to get BSL popular, you need to do the same thing. And that's why we have done it trivial for anybody to adopt it. So you just basically change your header files uh, and add that this is now in the BSL and then you copy one file from our, our website and change three lines right. that, that describes uh, your product name, um, the, the restrictions when you have to pay and uh, when your source code becomes uh, open source. And that's the only thing you have to do. So it's very trivial to do that. Hmm. So uh, last question. Look forward five years, three to five years. MariaDB, both on a technical sense and as your business, where do you see it going? Where would you love for it to go in five years? So the, the interesting thing with uh, uh, open source software is that you are not the leader of where you are going. You're working with a community, and if you had the right community, we basically are the one who is uh, predicting and steering the future, and you are working with them, you're basically part of it. 
and that makes uh, uh, open source so strong. Yeah. And that's why I, I want to have more companies being involved in that to be able to be a part of that. The only thing I know is that uh, that I see the trends just now is that much more distributed environments uh, and uh, setups where you're using uh, uh, lots of server and uh, and exchange data uh, behind them. So like some of the NoSQL solutions, but still uh, with a strong ACID compliance so that you know that you never lose something. And we have already have a product for that in them. Um, all up areas in other words and in analytics, but we also want to do the same thing in, in, in a transaction environment. So that, that, that's, we see at least one trend. Yeah. Another trend that we're working on is uh, making it easy to transist from closed source commercial databases to open source databases. So we added, adding a, in 10.3, we're adding a PLSQL layer on top of MariaDB. Oh really? That's interesting. So uh, where do people go if they're interested in the BSL, MariaDB, and want to learn more, Considering using BSL for their software, where do you go? Where do you send them? No, but, uh, you just search uh, with, with your favorite uh, search tool, for search for the business source license, and you, you will find that, that thing on top. It's okay. easy. Okay. Same thing with MariaDB. Okay. Very or good. you just go to your favorite website, which is probably already using MariaDB. Gotcha. There you go. <laughs> Very good. Well, Monty, thanks so much for joining us. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, who just launched Spaces, a beautifully simple object storage service designed for developers who want a simple way to store and serve a vast amount of data, such as hosting web assets, storing user-generated content, such as images and large media files, archiving backups in the cloud, and storing logs. Just like you use S3, Spaces has an ecosystem of S3 compatible tools and libraries that can be used to manage your space. And it's available independent of DigitalOcean servers. You don't need to use anything else, but just Spaces if you want. And to make it easy to try for both new and existing DigitalOcean customers, you can get started today with a free two month trial of Spaces by going to do.co slash changelog. And for new customers only, you'll also receive a $10 credit to use for DigitalOcean droplets or other services. Once again, do.co slash changelog. And by TopTal, the best place to work as a freelancer or hire the top 3% of freelance talent for developers, designers, and finance experts. In this segment, I talk with Jeff Mazur. My name is Jeff Mazur, and I'm a TopTal finance expert. And Jeff has a pretty awesome background for a freelancer. I have a background both in finance and law, and I have um, I actually have a CFA and a, and a JD. I've worked both in finance and as a practicing lawyer for major law firms in New York, Washington, and, and uh, Chicago. So I asked Jeff to share what differentiates TopTal as a global talent network and the process he had to go through to ensure he could be trusted as a finance expert for TopTal. The differentiator I see between TopTal and some of the organizations that are comparable or try to offer a similar type of service is that the people who are part of TopTal have really gone through pretty extensive screens. So in my case, for example, I probably spent 20 hours you know, of preparation and conversation and interviewing um, to make sure that I was the right fit for, uh, for TopTal. 
So what I offer and what other top tile finance experts offer is we offer just just really deep expertise in the areas that, that we talk about. So for example, if you look at you know ICOs, if you just did a Google search or you went into another platform and you look for ICO experts, ICO coordinators, ICO finance experts, you'd come across thousands of people. I mean, given the, the frothiness of the market and the level of interest in the market, you know, everyone's a finance expert right now in, in uh, ICOs. But in, in the case of TopTal, what they've really done is that they winnowed that you know, huge group out to come up with people who really are experts in the field. So if you're looking to freelance or you're looking to gain access to a network of top industry experts in development, design, or finance, head to TopTal.com and tell them Adam from the Chainsaw sent you. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. And for those out there wanting a more personal introduction, email me, adam at changelaw.com. So I love interviewing people who have Wikipedia pages. Uh Uh-oh. Because it makes my job really easy. Like, I don't have to do any research. I just pull up Wikipedia. I assume everything's 100% accurate. It's absolutely accurate. I, I, make, I watch it every day. You watch it every no, day. You got, I, like, I'm a program that checks it. Jimmy won't let me edit my own Wikipedia That's page. That's what I and hear. I was speaking with uh, the fellow that started MySQL and MariaDB. Yeah. And I was asking him Monty. about his... Yeah, Monty, yeah. thank you. About his Wikipedia page, and you can't edit your own page. You're not allowed to. No. I think it's actually a pretty good policy. It's near miraculous then that mine is actually updated at all. I'm just I'm <laughs> inaccurate. So uh, thank you out there to anyone who's uh, editing my Wikipedia page. Yeah. So Brian Bailendorf, uh, been around a long time, doing lots of things. Apache Web Server, uh, part of the Mozilla Foundation, EFF on the board there. First of all, thanks so much for sitting down with us. Well, thank you. And it's great. You mentioned all my hobbies. Uh, <laughs> not your job. All the things that I do uh, have done for fun. Um, so so uh, what yeah. do you do for not fun? What do you do for business? Okay. So my day job, my 150% time kind of gig, uh, is full-time executive director of Hyperledger, which is a collaborative project hosted at the Linux Foundation. Okay. So Hyperledger, tell us more. Sure. It's a open source project. It's actually a community of projects uh, that is focused on building technologies, kind of building blocks for doing distributed ledgers and smart contracts. Okay. So just, I look at somebody with a Wikipedia page, you know, a history in software. I don't want to structure you too much, but you could probably do lots of things at this point in your career. Why is this something that you're excited about? Why are you working at Hyperledger? Well, I've kind of had career ADD. So okay. I've, I've done a couple of startups. I worked for uh, the World Economic Forum. I worked at the White House. I was a venture capitalist at one point. Um, never really worked for a giant company, but yeah. kind of had been swimming around them a, long, a, a lot. Uh, and uh, I had this uh, unnerving kind of feeling over the last 10 years, having been on the internet since fairly early days, like early 90s, right? That the last 10 years has been this move towards centralization rather than decentralization, right? Mm. That as we've gotten more digital, we started to depend upon central companies more and more and been forced to trust them right. rather than choosing to trust them, right? And and that's because it's always easier to set up a big central database than it is to build a federated or decentralized yeah. network, right? Decentralized right. system. But the reason why the internet created so much value and was so amazing was because of its decentralization. Yes, absolutely. And I'm, and I'm still one of those freaks who runs my own mail server, which I'm now, nice. as, I'm sure is going to get DDoSed uh, <laughs> uh, uh, upon somebody hearing this. But uh, um, So you uh, go into your spam assassin and update your you know, right, Bayesian exactly. filters? There's a lot of attacks there. Um, so, no, I, and, uh, it's, you know, it's not easy, but I actually enjoy it because um, uh, I'm weird like that. But so, so when I started hearing about Bitcoin, I was kind of skeptical because I'm not a currency speculator at heart and, and, yeah. while, and I don't necessarily agree with a lot of the political 
political kind of side to that. But I was really attracted to the idea that, hey, here's a bunch of people now thinking about decentralization, right? And autonomy, sovereign presence on the internet, all yeah. that good stuff. So I followed that a little bit from the periphery, followed the Ethereum community from the periphery. Um, but I was still passive. And it was as, a, as an investor uh, at my gig just before this, where I started to talk to Bitcoin companies and blockchain companies and finally heard the use case that made me go, whoa. Which was land titles in emerging markets, land which might titles. sound land real titles, estate. real estate, which might sound completely you know bizarre. But anybody who's ever bought property or a house or sold property or a house yeah. knows how much like BS there is in dealing with paperwork, um, but also how much we depend upon you know registering paperwork with the right government officials. Well, we even and have companies that do these things like. And closing fees and entitled, entitlement companies, right? Right. And it might seem like, why bother thinking about this as a problem? Well, um, uh, in, in emerging markets where um, they had started to digitize land records, it actually made it, in order to give people not only you know a sense of uh, ownership over the property they perhaps lived on for generations, it, the idea was also allow them to be able to take out loans to start businesses, right? This is There's a guy, an economist named Hernando de Soto okay. uh, who wrote a book called The Wealth at the Bottom of the Pyramid, which was all, let's help India build their economy and South okay. America and others by allowing people to to build businesses on top of the ownership in the land that they have. Right. Okay. So there's a big movement to digitize these systems, but it was discovered that this also made it easier for corrupt bureaucrats uh, and those who had which root is already pretty easy, but this is even easier now, right? Well, and those <laughs> who had root on that database, yeah, right? Exactly. To be able to change entries in that database without any accountability, without any sort of paper trail, right? And which and is made the problem with centralized systems is whoever holds the keys holds all the power. All right. So so there were uh, there was actually an Austin-based company called Factum, which uh, has been working on land titles, you know, in addition to a bunch of other related projects and using a distributed ledger to um, track changes to uh, a data, a public database of who owns what property where. Okay. Right? And in doing that, making it <clears throat> much harder for people's land to be taken away from them because then it becomes obvious when there's an entry added that that violates principles, right? That violates this person's uh, consent, this landowner's consent, et cetera. So, right. so that made me go, aha. And I started digging more at it. And then my next question was, could you do this kind of thing without a cryptocurrency, right? Because, you know, I run a mail server. I don't charge people to send me mail. If I did, I'd be a very wealthy man. Um, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps that's my mistake. Or you would uh, get way less mail, right? But Which I also think the internet, nice too. like I was on Prodigy before I was on the internet, right? Prodigy was this BBS ran by IBM. Right, okay. where it cost you twenty five cents to send an email. Oh wow! Um, yeah, that would stop some spammers. Exactly, right? You never got any spam, but it was also twenty five cents <laughs> yeah. to send an email. You also never um, got an email. You never. You had <laughs> mailing lists. In fact, uh, well, no, I won't go there. Um, but uh, but so what was great about the internet is you didn't have to charge people to to, to set up mail servers. You didn't have to, or, or or send people mail. You didn't. Right. Have, you know, and websites the same thing. You could set up a web. So so I, I really wanted to figure out were these two highly dependent or or could you tease them apart? And it turns out that cryptocurrencies are an application of distributed ledgers and smart contracts. Yes, right? yes. And so I, once I saw that architectural approach, I started going, oh, who's working on that 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 kind of thing? Yeah. And then I saw Hyperledger get announced by the Linux Foundation, right? And to some degree, it kind of looked like a 45-year-old, I'm 44, by the way, um, uh, a 45-year-old showing up at a skate park with a skateboard going, <laughs> you know, hey, you guys make it look hey, easy. Dudes, and then, like, yeah, yeah hold, my, hold my beer. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you don't want to be that guy. No, no. But then, um, so learning more about it and spending time with Jim Zemlin, who's the head of the Linux Foundation, spending time with folks who are part of pulling that together from IBM, from a startup company called Digital Asset, from, okay. from a bunch of others, learned more about kind of the rationale and said, 
Okay, this is important to work on. It's not against the cryptocurrency side of the world, but it's right. like, in fact, there's ways that we need them and ways to work together. Um, but maybe there's some real opportunity here to build something and that has a some standalone thing that's all yeah. about the. The, the ledger. It's all about that public It's record. about getting this idea out, getting it in, in the form of Legos and building blocks that, that, that people can piece together um, and, and making sure that all the good ideas out there about how to do it, all the controversial kind of architectures, you know, then, and, and, and different ways of doing smart contracts, give them a place where they can be built independent of a, of a single vendor. Yeah. Because this is another thing that's been on my mind is a lot of the open source community had kind of forgotten about the role of neutral kind of uh, homes for the governance of the project. Projects, right. So Apache has done that very right. well. Foundation, Free Software Foundation, other or Software Conservancy done that very well. Uh, but uh, much of the open source world had gone to you know a company kind of releasing it and then setting up a .org, you know, and, and right. saying the community edition. Which makes it harder want, and harder for us using open source or even just yeah. following open sources. And something that we do with the Changelog all the time is help us tease apart the business from the open source right. thing and like see clearly through the mud. And, and I really felt it was important. If this was how we re-decentralize the net, if this is how we rebuild the building blocks, that that plumbing be as uh, uh, public, publicly owned as possible, right? Okay. Uh, and be as, as multi-stakeholder, if you will. Like, this multi-stakeholder concept is something that I've believed in for a long time, and at the World Economic Forum is a big part of how they operate, too. This idea that the best policies and the best projects in the world come from people with wildly different agendas coming together and figuring out what's the greatest common denominator <laughs> of right. what you can work on, right? Uh, of what you can build of what you all independently want and then can build together. So, um, so that's why the, the Hyperledger approach kind of appealed to me. So tell us the approach specifically. Help us understand it in your context. Hyperledger, the open source thing. You said this is your 150% day job, right? Yeah. So the business. So I'm the pointy-haired boss. I'm the uh, I'm the diplomat. I'm okay. the one who try to uh, cajoles the companies into joining the project and then working nice with each other, right? Right. Because uh, it is too easy in open source projects for one vendor to run away with the title, you know, want to run away with the brand, want to run away and say we're the only Linux company or we're the only Apache company. I mean, sure. there are lots of concerns about that in the early days of any of these projects. Absolutely. Right? And so part of it is keeping that at bay and. That means doing boring things like thinking about trademark and thinking about you know events to be at and and how to get you know the uh, the right messages out. And then there's the other side, which is having the substance. You know, it doesn't matter what you talk right. about if you don't have substance, yeah. right? So the how itself. do you get the communities together? How do you bring the right kinds of additional projects in, the right kind of additional thinking in, so that it's not just one person's view of, of what should be built, but a collective view and and where you can be challenged on that, right? Where there's a healthy uh, community of people who are feel empowered to say maybe there's a different approach maybe right. that maybe well, you're wrong it's the multi-stakeholder thing let's, right let's it's get to thing. rough consensus and running code as quickly as we can yeah. really emphasize running code right and something that doesn't doesn't matter what your ideas are you can't boil it down to running code so so get these communities together ship it get them in, using the best practices of the open source community whether that's how apache works or on a security perspective the the cii badging process yeah. right like uh, how do you run security conscious security sensitive kind of projects out there and then finally, a lot of the companies interested in this are new to open source. So working with them and their developers to understand how to actually you know, post a bug in a way that you know, is a good, a good bug report, right? useful, yeah. and, and not have to divulge details about your client or your, kind of, you know, your, your, your private business, right? Um, you know, that a lot of people are very skittish and still unsure how to do that. Um, and so 20 years later, it feels like a lot of the same issues. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, um, but these everything are everything new is old so. again, or everything old is yeah. new again. Uh, give us the purview of the technology, where it stands, like what it is, you know, the, yeah. the meat of the matter. 
So there's eight different projects uh, at Hyperledger. Um, all of them, except one, in incubation status still, because we're still growing the community cultures around these projects. Um, the one that's graduated is called Fabric. Okay. And it's one of four, which you might think of as frameworks uh, uh, at, at, the, at Hyperledger. It is a, uh, a, a tool for being able to stand up a distributed ledger amongst a network of participants. So you and I and eight other people would independently run a Fabric node Right, and and we'd point at each other. Right, uh, we'd be permissioned actually uh, okay. uh, uh, amongst each other, uh, and then between us eight, between us ten, whatever, uh, there would be this common system of record. Right, and you right. could write entries, I could write entries, somebody else could write They're entries. They're all verifiable, irreversible. Well, it, yeah, exactly. You yeah. Have the immutability because it's a Merkle tree, which is a string of signatures uh, with data, so that um, you can't, you know, you'd have your copy, I'd have my copy, but the integrity of that would be verifiable. Right. So. Um, uh, and then uh, it, Fabric on top of that has a format for being able to write scripts that get deployed across the network uh, that uh, written in Go uh, that run inside of a Docker VM. Okay. And so what, what this means is that we can encode, like you and I could encode a promise that says, I promise to transfer to you some tokens in this network um, mm -hmm. if you know, the price of rice in China is this on this certain day right. or something like that, right? An options contract or yeah. an insurance contract. And the cool thing is because it's a contract that now is shared on the network, then it's verifiable. Everyone can see, oh yeah, Brian made a promise that, that you would do this thing. Absolutely. And I can't pull it back. So your risk that I wouldn't make good on that promise or pay up is gone. So this is called counterparty risk, right. uh, and that's eliminated in a setting like this. And normally that's a big issue. Counterparty risk is why we have financial crises. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. Um, so this is a tool to try to fight that kind of thing. Cool. So you got excited because of the land title situation. Obviously with contracts, I think about land titles all the time or yeah. pro property. Um, but is Hyperledger specific to that, or you can use it for any kind of contract, any sort of thing? These oh, tools. it's very generalized. Yeah. Um, you could use it for all sorts of digital assets, right? So you could use it as a cryptocurrency system if your currency are things like, you know, frequent flyer miles, right? Uh, or, or loyalty points, or um, uh, uh, carbon emission credits, right? Uh, or other types of currency-like things where you know, what's distinctive about Ethereum and Bitcoin is that they are uh, uh, crypt currencies whose total volume is is limited by the hash rate, right? right. You know, it grows a little bit. Eventually, all of them will be mined. Right. It grows fast right away and then slower, slower, exactly. slower, slower. But that's yeah. just one way to do it. Ripple right. is a different approach where Ripple has a fixed set of XRPs. And, and I think they reserve the right to mint new ones. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. But, like, um, but that's a different way of just managing a currency. But you could create currencies using Fabric that um, are either completely independent, not to I did anything, or you could say it's tied to a promise to have a share of a bar of gold uh, sitting in a safe somewhere, right? Yeah. Now, there's still the risk that that company doesn't make good on that promise, right? Yeah. But uh, uh, or it could be your title to your home or a title to a big diamond. Uh, that that latter example is something I think we're likely to see one project move in, which is using Hyperledger Fabric, which is towards um, uh, uh, is the it's all about the supply chain and the diamond industry and trying to keep blood diamonds from entering circulation um, and nice. the provenance of where where these diamonds come from, right? Uh, uh, so a titling system for knowing who owns what diamonds and who has the right to sell it. So right. that in the future, if you have like a giant rock that you want to sell me, I can look up whether you actually, own, I, that you actually own that in the ledger. And if right. you don't, I probably shouldn't buy it from you because you probably got it from a, <laughs> a, a warlord somewhere. In, right. you know, in the, in, yeah, exactly. So that's very cool. Um, you got eight projects, seven in incubation. So it's still early days. You got Fabric, right. which is 
Ready so, to roll. Exactly. So uh, there's Sawtooth, which is uh, a different approach to building distributed ledgers. I can go into that if you're interested. Another one called uh, Iroha, which came from some of our Japanese members, which okay. is tightly coded C++ designed for um, small systems, you know, mobile clients, that sort of thing. Um, uh, actually, an interesting project there with the Bank of Cambodia, of all places. Uh, huh. uh, and then uh, the fourth one is called Burrow. And okay. this is actually an implementation of the Ethereum virtual machine. Uh, which uh, is really exciting because this is there's a lot of good academic research as well as a lot of market validation going on around the Ethereum VM and, and a smart contract language called Solidity. Yeah. And so now being able to graph that on top of the other DLTs is suddenly much more possible than it was before. We did a show on Ethereum uh, maybe nine months ago and had a lot of excitement in our community around yeah. it. Smart contracts, of course, that was right. It's kind of interesting. It was right through the the crisis. Uh, in fact, we scheduled the show before the crisis and we had a reschedule and then everything, it was one of these things, you know, technology moves fast, well, cryptocurrencies uh -huh. are but the fastest moving things. Everything had changed by the time we actually did the show. So it's very interesting that way. Um, but yeah, smart contracts, very interesting. These, you know, making the actual scriptability or the writing of those contracts, you know, bringing that down to where it's more, accept more uh, uh, not acceptable, but e uh, what's the word? Accessible. Mm -hmm. Very close to acceptable. Very more <laughs> accessible to other developers is, is very right. cool. Uh, sounds like these different projects are they? It's not like we have these eight and they mesh together and, and perform a thing. These so, sound like different things. So those four are very different things. Yeah, they solve at a hundred thousand foot view the same problem. It's kind of like comparing MySQL to Cassandra it's just to different CouchDB at to this ledger. exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, now the other four. Uh, just to real quick, one is kind of a GUI tool for building um, building these kinds of blockchain, what they're calling business networks. Okay. Right? It's a mix of all these things, but it, it's kind of kind of like Eclipse, right? What Eclipse was for Java, um, and it's called Composer. Um, another project is called Explorer. It's simply a way to navigate around your DLT and see who's published what, and you know, it's like a debugging tool, but also a way to understand what's going on. Okay. When, Sometimes all you see are these hashes pointing to other hashes. It can be kind of confusing, right? Um, there's a, another tool called uh, uh, Indie, Hyperledger Indie, okay. which is all about uh, uh, trying to um, uh, 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 trying to build an identity layer that spans multiple distributed ledgers. Um, uh, it's trying to answer the question of how do we get to a world where we have identities on these different systems without creating a master database of like one one organization, government or private, that knows everything about us, right? But how do we get back to sovereign uh, identity control? You know, and and this is a, a, a recurring theme that that has been a part of our industry for 15, 20 years. No one's ever really solved well. Yeah. Uh, I think we have a key part of a solution to this. So I'm really excited about that. So I wanted um, to ask you, you to the distributed identity problem. Yeah, you're you're actually keen into what I was going to ask for my final segment here, which is about the future and like. What would it look like, assuming that everything that you're up to with Hyperledger is successful and like you build the things that you're trying to build and the communities thrives and people accept and they all build around it. Assuming the success, what is you know, what does the industry, digital assets and all these things that we're involved in look like five years from now? I mean, is it utopia? So, is everything perfect now? No, you know, I, it's not magic pixie dust. <laughs> well, that's and, a little and, bit you know, rhetorical. Some but. of us idealists <laughs> have certainly seen our uh, technologies used to create some really horrible things, yeah, right? Exactly. So, so you have to be very cognizant of that. No, I think for for businesses, it means that a lot of the processes that today are and rules about how markets work that are enforced by lawyers and enforced by you know people having to like watch what goes on and 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 can't automate what they do. There'll be a lot more automation, and because of more automation, there'll be more auditability. Mm. And they'll, you know, it'll just be either impossible or much harder to commit certain kinds of fraud. Hopefully, it means more stability in financial markets because I think 
The mortgage crisis had that industry use distributed ledgers and smart contracts to define these structures. Right. We would have had much less of a run-up and also a bit more of an would orderly unwinding. a lot sooner, right? I don't know if you watched, uh, saw the movie The Big Short. I did, um, yeah. The chaos in there potentially could have been a lot less. Um, right. Now, that's an idealist speaking, right? And, and so we have to be careful about that. Right. For consumers, um, it might not look that much different. This is still largely a back-end story. I mean, um, but where I think it plays out is, so the idea of Bitcoin wallets, right, really made real for, for people, like the fact that this is a, this actually a currency. Yeah. Imagine that concept now applied to your health records or to your land title and car title and other important documents that today you print out or if you, you know, probably don't even have in digital form, they might just right. be pieces of paper you keep in a filing cabinet, which you hope you remember to grab with you when a forest fire is coming for well, your house. I was going to say, like, right? just or, thinking, my, me personally, like, we have our title in a safe, just in case the house burns down, it's like fire resistant safe. Right. But so, so we, that should be digital. Yeah, there should absolutely. be a way f to take that with you. And, and for things like medical records, people don't even feel connected to their medical records. Right. No. So my hope is that in all these important parts of life, you know, as they get more digital, they actually get more sovereign. They get more about um, things that, you know, are portable, that you don't have to depend upon a, a particular company or another to, to hold for you and look out for you. Right. That, you know, it gives you, and by that gives you more power as a consumer, more, more control, more, more flexibility. So, Awesome. Yeah. Brian, final thoughts? Anything you want to say? No. We, uh... Just uh, it's really fun to be back at an open source conference. I've been coming to this for 20 years, 22 years, I think we realized it the other day, the other day 21 years. Wow. Um, uh, and uh, uh, to be amongst my peeps, I guess, uh, and uh, and to see the interest in energy here. People still want to understand what it's about, and so that's why I'm here. Yeah. Uh, but uh, um, more and more people are going, yeah, we really want to get our hands dirty with this. Cool. So, well, I'll yeah. let you get back to your peeps. Thanks so much for sitting down <laughs> and having a talk with me. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. It provides continuous delivery out of the box with its built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end. It supports modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments, and their plugin ecosystem ensures GoCD will work well in your unique environment. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.org changelog. It's open source and free to use, and there's also professional support and enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org changelog. by Tag Griffith, who is the head of developer advocacy for Redis Labs. So cool that there's a Redis lab, like there's businesses around Redis, right? Yeah. Or maybe just one. I don't know if there's more than one, but just the fact that Redis is a thing that still exists in the world so much and it's so vibrant that there's like a cottage industry around it. To me, it's just cool. Yeah, I, well, I would say it's even more than just a, a cottage industry. It, I mean, I, I got this job. I uh, come from a Redis developer background. Okay. So I was doing large, like, 25 billion operation a day 
uh, systems using Redis. And, wow. and so I'd been talking a lot about the work that I had been doing with Redis, and it was really a kind of a natural transition. And there really is a huge ecosystem around Redis. And then we have Redis Labs who provide, you know, the standard enterprise version of right. an open source product. And we sponsor the open source product. But it, I wouldn't even call it a cottage industry. Like I okay. said, I mean. It's bigger than cottage. Yeah. Um, we were just at uh, DockerCon a couple of weeks ago yeah. right here in Austin. And uh, we're actually the number one downloaded database container on the Docker Hub now. Really? Is, is Redis. Is Redis. Yeah. So, so many uses, so many, it fits into so many use cases. You know, if you have a, if your favorite uh, relational database of choice, everybody can just throw Redis into the mix and have, you know, some immediate wins. So it makes sense that, you know, you know, some people are pro this, pro that, but like everybody loves Redis. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think one of the things is it's very easy for developers to approach Redis. You know, you've got all these data structures that are very similar to what you work with in Python or Java, right. whatever language you're working with. And it's very easy to do incremental projects with Redis. So you start maybe just as a hobbyist and then you drop it in as a cache and your first actual real production system. Right. Then you start finding other data structures and uses of Redis where it can really either accelerate performance, store data that doesn't fit into NoSQL database, or sorry, doesn't fit into SQL databases right. really well. And then even you start looking at more of like the commercial products to hit on the high availability, the scaling, and, and some of that. Um, you know, and you've got this whole range of, of systems and, and uses you can apply this one product to. Refresh me on the history of Redis a little bit. So you had, you know, and I always call them anti-res because I just mm -hmm. say it in my head. Maybe it's Antares. I don't know. Uh, Salvatore Sanfilippo started this years ago. Uh, he actually became sponsored by, I think he got hired by VMware or something for a while. Yeah. I don't know. It was kind of like one of these, the frontier of like paying people to do an open source thing and how that was mm -hmm. going to work out. And I think we've even had shows with him uh, throughout that part. But that was years ago. I haven't kept up with where Redis is, except for as a user. Uh, tell us a little bit of the history, maybe the sure. recent history of the Redis project. So um, I think it was around 2009 when uh, Salvatore first released Redis. And it's, I, I always pronounce it anti-Res. It, it actually comes from, uh, he and a friend were looking for handles, and it comes from Trent Reznor. Okay. Um, is I always kind of wondered where that came from. Yeah, and it me comes too. From, from Trent Reznor. Okay. And so his friend he, was, he doesn't like Trent Reznor. No, his He's friend. He's anti-Res. <laughs> it actually is slightly different. Okay. I think he likes Trent. Um, I'm trying to start a mythos here. <laughs> his friend was was going by the the handle Resner or, or, or Res, and yeah. so he he just sort of was the opposite. The gotcha. Foil. Okay, it's, very it's good. That's how I've heard it. So, um, yeah. So he you know he started it. Uh, it kept growing and growing. Um, I sort of came to Redis. Uh, I used to work at Flickr and Yahoo, and we're very early adopters of Redis. Mm -hmm. Then all this community started building around it. So you had sort of the first Redis conferences. Then you had uh, Salvatore uh, VMware started sponsoring it. Uh, then Pivotal was providing some support. Okay. And then uh, eventually Redis Lab showed up. We started as a cloud provider of Redis and then thought it would be strategic and useful for us to sponsor the open source project. And now we sponsor um, okay. open source Redis and, and Salvatore works with us very closely. We contribute back to the product cool. as well as we have uh, evangelists like myself uh, and Itamar 
and our employees who go out and support both the op purely open source Redis and uh, our commercialized, Your commercialized version. Redis. Cool. So is he still able to work on it full time, but now through your guys' sponsorship? Or uh, he does, and he spends most of his time coding. In fact, he resists really anything that kind of gets in the Good way for of him. coding. <laughs> I am. I'm very jealous. <laughs> I come from a developer background, so I love writing code. But uh, he's definitely, you know, he works with us, but he ultimately owns the agenda. So it's very much. It is his open source project. Yeah. We support him. We support the project. Yeah. So how does that feel from a business perspective and kind of being uh, in the hands of somebody else? I mean, I guess that's how you got to where you are now because he's had good hands. Mm -hmm. He's proven he's had good hands. But uh, is there any, like, lack of control can sometimes scare businesses? But do you guys have any of that? Sure. Um, I don't think it's a problem. I think it works really well. I, I think uh, kind of the bigger things are trying to be sensitive around community is that we need to do the right thing by the open source community as well as our users. So balancing in that out, um, being fair to the open source. Uh, I always feel like it's very important for us that we support both purely the open source as well as uh, our commercial users. Um, I think it involves different ways of, of working. Um, if you look at you know a lot of corporations or you know they like to have plans, and really what we right. have to do is Generally. we have to take his technical direction, and he sets his direction. Yeah. We work with him to contribute, and that means sometimes he may not like our contributions. Other times he does, right. and so we work in the the same framework as every other contributor to open the open source Redis. Excuse me if I'm a little distracted. There's a lot of different people that come to OSCON, but there's actually there's an actual pigeon. That's walking around behind you. Yeah. And so I'm trying to pay attention, but I'm also like, you know, when you see a squirrel and mm -hmm. you're like, a squirrel. But there's like a literal pigeon that just keeps flying around. Yeah, the pigeon dropped by our booth earlier <laughs> to learn about Redis. So even the pigeons love It's like Redis. everybody's coming to OzCon. Yeah. Uh, so you're you're here, you're at an event like this, you guys have a booth. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the kind of things, you know, you're talking about Redis evangelists. What are the kind of things that you guys say that would get somebody who's like, what's Redis or why would I use Redis? What's the most compelling bit about it? Uh, sure. I think one of the big things is the flexibility. So it's very easy to approach. It has a lot of data structures that you can use to solve various engineering problems. Uh, like we talked about earlier, the, the sort of incrementalness. So it fits into kind of these agile models. And also, you can sort of start using Redis alongside other systems to improve your performance, to uh, store data in a way that doesn't work well in, in SQL or relational databases. And then you start really iteratively building on your success with earlier projects yeah. to build more and more Redis. That's how I got started when I was a developer. You know, I started with the basic key value paradigm using Redis as a key value source, right. and then started moving into uh, storing other pre-computations, persisting data, all of that. And it, it's very natural, kind of, you can just build and build and build on that experience. And yeah. I mean, Redis is fast. Everything is in memory. Um, uh, just in any sort of well-structured Redis database, you're almost always going to have all your your operations served in under a millisecond, which is extremely fast. You generally, yeah. there's very few systems that can offer you that level of low latency. So there's, a, I've never used Redis as a primary store or as a persistent store mm -hmm. where this is like the one place my data lives. It's always like a cache or yeah, something something where I can sure. run some stuff that's ephemeral. Or I can I can recalculate if I have to, right? In uh -huh. the case of data loss, um, surely there are people that are using Redis as their one and only, or you know, uh, definitely in persistence. Yeah. 
tell us that story. Sure. Like, how does it work in that sense? Sure. I, I actually think that's a very common way people come come to Redis. Yeah. Everyone knows Redis as sort of the key value store. A flexible cache that you can yeah. use in like unique ways. Everyone loves Redis as a cache. That's actually almost kind of one of the, the biggest challenges of my job is that everyone knows Redis as, uh, as they, the cache. They put it in the corner. And I'm like kind of like, hey, there's all these there's other, more things. other things you can do with Redis. Right. And it, and, and it takes a lot of people a, a while to get to the notion or the idea that you can use Redis persistence. There's multiple modes of persistence. There's uh, sort of the snapshot version of persistence. There's also the changelog version of persistence. So you can tune, and this is one of the nice things with Redis, is that you can tune those trade-offs between performance, persistence, durability guarantees, hmm. your sort of window of loss. So you can find kind of the sweet spot that works the best for you as a developer. Nice. Um, and But I do, I know a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, Redis is great, it's this cache, it's this great cache. And it's a big kind of leap of faith to go from cache to, yeah. oh, but I can use this as a persistent store. It feels, because it's so easy and lightweight and flexible, it feels disposable, it feels ephemeral, like, you always think it's like an add-on. Yeah. But the reality is very capable in, in other ways. Very, very capable. In fact, I gave a, a birds of a feather at OSCON mm -hmm. to really talk to people about getting beyond that notion of just as a key value. And I think so many people come to Redis as, uh, as, a, as a key value, as a cache. Everyone knows it as that. They just, they often never get beyond that and look at all the other powerful things you can do with Redis. Yeah. One of the things that Salvatore added probably a couple years ago now, which is really cool, is the scripting stuff through Lua. Uh -huh. uh, lots of you know improvements to Redis over the years. What what's the future look like? You're obviously involved in where it's headed. You know, sure. push us out a year or two. Like what's the new stuff that's going to be coming down the pipeline? Uh, so I'll make a little bit of a, a plug. There, there's going to be some new stuff announced at Redis Conf, which we run in San Francisco. Okay, when's that? Uh, it'll be at the end of the month. So okay. we'll be revealing more of the. Well, really, Salvatore will be revealing more the of roadmap stuff. the roadmap and, and some cool changes that are coming in. I think the big one for this show, which was announced last year, or this conference that was announced last year, is modules. That's really the new, really, really powerful okay. um, thing we're working on. And so this has been a collaboration between Salvatore and Redis Labs. We have several of our engineers contributing both modules and support for the modules code. Okay. Um, and what modules are going to give Redis developers is now you have a way of extending and modifying and changing Redis without having to convince Salvatore that this is the thing that Redis needs. Right. I mean, it's one of the great parts of open source is that you can, it's now a modular extension to the, the Redis without needing to go through the change, you know, change right, request. Right. And it's actually a great proving ground too yeah. for things that could go in the core. I mean, once you have like a plugin or module model, you don't have to convince him. But if you build something that's you know super useful and all of a sudden everybody loves it and it becomes huge, and it's like actually, you know, that makes sense to be part oh, of yeah. Redis. And so it's 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 cool that way that you could have a proving ground. And it's actually one of the maybe interesting things is it's also going backwards from that. So uh, Salvatore did a fork to provide basically a message broker kind of system based on Redis. And now he's realized that he can take that and turn it into a module. And ah. instead of, so his fork is essentially is that D -message? collapsing. Was that? Uh, Disqueue. Disqueue, yeah. okay. 
Yep, I remember and, that. Uh, and so he's take he's realized that he could take that and provide it as a module. So he's hoping to find time to work on that. I but see. It, it's sort of interesting. It's it's almost the de-evolution of a fork into right. something else. Like he but. forked it, but now he created he modified the main thing so that he wouldn't have had to fork it. He could have he could provide yeah. that as a module now. Very and, cool. And you know, uh, for Redis Labs, I mean, there's there's a lot of advantages. Is that we can provide things for our customers in a way that doesn't necessarily impact open source in a little bit of you know faster way faster turnaround we're trying to do a lot of our our modules open source and we're also trying to put together a module registry so that you can you have a good authoritative place to go look for new modules right sure. um, we have on our github you can go there and you can see a lot of the modules that our engineers have written uh, right now we've written uh, one to make JSON a native data type within Redis, ReJSON. Uh, there's also a secondary indexing and in, uh, search module. Uh, and then also some things around machine learning. So cool. you can use Redis to serve up parameterized machine learning models. Well, thanks for fun. Thanks so much for talking Great. to us. Great, thanks for having me. All right, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Change Log. If you enjoyed the show, share it with a friend, rate us on Apple Podcasts, go on Overcast and favorite it. Share it with a friend. If you enjoy the show, that's what you got to do. Share it with a friend. Thank you to our sponsors, AuthZero, DigitalOcean, TopTal, and GoCD. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we host everything we do on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support the show. And the changelog is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Jared Santo. Editing is by Jonathan Youngblood. And the awesome music you've been hearing is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more episodes just like this at changelog.com or by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.